0: G'day mate, welcome to episode 73 of the Exponential Performance Podcast. Today, we are taking a look at the Training Peaks Performance Management Chart for our second episode in our Training Peaks series. And then Nick's gonna jump into Sprint Interval Training and talk about why and how you should be integrating this into your own training. And then we've got a little bit of a question from one of our listeners about training training fasted. Let's get into it.
1: Welcome to the Exponential Performance Podcast. Join sports scientist and performance coach Matty Graham to find out how to train smarter and maximize your performance no matter who you are.
0: G'day mate. Welcome along to episode 73 of the Exponential Performance Podcast. So good to have you here. We are in the second week of lockdown here in New Zealand or just finished our first week. So into our second week here. Nick, how have you been finding the first week of lockdown with the COVID-19 virus still doing its thing?
1: Uh, I've actually quite enjoyed it, I must admit. Um, It's just nice to not have anywhere to rush off to. You can, you know, if you want to spend an extra few minutes watching TV or outside in the the garden, it doesn't really matter. Uh, And I've probably done. More consistent training than I have for a while since I haven't been working on the road all the time, so I can actually do my morning rides.
0: Yeah, work definitely gets in the way of training sometimes, doesn't it? it but does. uh, I always remember uh, when I was back at, in university and I first started uh, coaching you back a long time ago now. Uh, and first time I ever met you, we were doing that, we sat down for our, um, our little pre-training meeting to like get to know you fill out the forms uh, see what your goals were how much time you have that sort of thing and i still remember this one thing you said to me and i was just like that's this guy's brilliant he said <laughs> work pays me to have fun later <laughs> i was like that is such a good saying and i've uh i've held on to that with Jim nicholas and nice. um it just made me think about that now so yes Work does get in the way of training, but work also pays you to have fun later, <laughs> All right. it does. so keep that in mind as well. Yes. So what have you been doing for your training while you've been in lockdown?
1: Uh, I have only ridden my bike inside on a trainer, um, mm-hmm. so I think I mentioned it last week, I'm fortunate enough to have a power trainer uh, linked up to Zwift, so I can still still get that kind of semi-group ride feel and do some races and get some intensity uh, without being out on the road, Um just trying to be as socially responsible as I can around that um, and and not go too far. And done a couple of sort of strength stuff. Um, Got a wee sort of chin-up bar. I go over my office door. So I come in and out, do some chin-ups and some push-ups and, you know, get involved in all those 25 for 25 and see 10, do 10 type of challenges that are floating around the internet at the moment. Good. Um, Yeah. But no, haven't haven't been outside on the bike, but I am vowing this weekend to learn how to do a wheelie properly um a few of the guys have got a bit of a challenge going who can do the longest wheelie on like a rugby field sort of thing so i'd, I'd best oh, awesome. get out and and have a bit of a play around with that
0: very cool and you haven't found it too much of a uh problem being locked inside or limited training over this uh, area not so far no no
1: i think because all the races have just been taken off the schedule pretty much for the foreseeable future. There's no, oh, I've got to be doing this to, because of this race coming up. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can jump on your bike and, oh, actually, I'm feeling good today, I'm going to do a hard session, or I'm just going to jump on and do an easy session, and there's no real pressure to do one or the other, um, which is cool. And there's no pressure, you know, you get up in the morning and, oh, I'm just going to have a coffee and, and read a book instead of sitting on my bike. There's no pressure to do that either. So having that pressure taken off, it's, it's really quite nice.
0: And you haven't found that not having any pressure has led to just these days of meandering through life with no clear direction, or do you still have that, that focus and direction even though you don't have that structure of work in the way?
1: Um, oh, I think I go through bouts of that even when I did have races in the calendar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I haven't found it any different in that respect, um, but I think I have felt almost better because without the pressure of having to do XYZ, kind of achieving a bit more because there's no pressure to do X, Y, Z, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, it sure does. Yeah. No, I think, I've personally, i found it quite good as well. Eh? Like, we're, mm. we've got in some really good routines now with, uh, you know, the Graham homeschooling curriculum <laughs> for our two kids. So we've been going hard on that, and the kids are really starting to, you know, settle into the swing of things. And what I've found is that, like, we have to get up in the morning because the kids, 7 o'clock, boom, they're, they're into it and what i've been doing is a wee bit of a preemptive strike i got to usually get up a bit earlier do a little bit of work and then as soon as they're up at 7 like we're straight into something sort of set the scene for the day and we've been doing like uh they're really big into dancing and Les mills has just put out there sort of their Mm -hmm. workouts online. So we're either hitting one of those or hitting like a Taekwondo uh, stretching session in the morning or doing something active like straight away because they jump out of the bed like uh, just fizzing, ready to go. And that's been really good because when we, before that, would sort of slowly get into the day and they'd just be going off off their nuts straight away. So... And then it becomes light, right, at about 8 o'clock now, sort of, you know, nicely light outside. So then we chuck the rollerblades on or jump on the scooters or on the bikes and go do some laps around the neighborhood and then try and settle into something. Uh, And so uh, for my training, I've just been mainly running and then doing some strength work uh, around home as well with limited gear, like a pull-up bar, like you've said, and uh, some kettlebells as well. Um, so, yeah, so far, so good. Nice. Sounds a bit like a, a Graham boot camp with the kids. Oh, mate. The- <laughs> they, they put me under the pump every day, just <laughs> like in boot camp. I tell you what. I tell you what. Good. All right. What we're going to jump in today is the second in our Training Peak series. We started this series back in Episode 71, and I just wanted to carry on with that. Uh, now because we did miss it in episode 72 but what we're going to be talking about today is the performance management chart the performance management chart is kind of hard to describe in words so if you're wanting to see a graphical representation of this head over to the youtube channel and what i'll do is i'll put up a diagram of the performance management chart over there so you can actually see things as i'm talking about them um that might be a bit easier uh as we go but the performance management chart is essentially a tool on training peaks that takes all of those numbers all of that data that you collect on your heart rate monitor or your power meter and sort of does a little bit of behind the scenes magic to make that data useful in terms of quantifying training load for one and then you can use it as also for planning and predicting training load in the future So why is this important? Well, as we talked about in the first part of the series, there's a lot of people, the extent of their training device, this multiple hundred-dollar device that they have, is they push start, they go out, do their session, they come home, they push stop, and then they upload it to Strava and see how many KOMs they got or personal bests. That's the sort of extent that all of that data goes to uh, informing their training. But what the performance management chart does is it takes all of those and and uses it essentially. So what it does is it gives us some different values, different values. The first value that it gives us is what's called a training stress score. And this is the little red dots on the performance management chart. And the training stress score is essentially how hard the session was, how much training stress it put on the body. And it does this by calculating uh, a little calculation that it does between how long the session was, so the duration, and how hard the session was in terms of intensity based on either heart rate or power, or if you've got your pace zones set up and you're running, it does it also on running pace. So all of these little dots uh, are little red dots that you see on the performance management chart, are essentially how hard that training session was so a really long session is going to have a higher value than a shorter session Uh, alternatively a harder session is going to have a higher value than an easier session and then any combination of long and hard are going to have varying degrees of uh, hardness or training stress so what your performance management chart then does is it takes all of those training stress scores uh, over the past week past seven days and it gives you what's called the acute training load the acute training load and this can also be thought of as fatigue so the more you train and this is the pink line if you're looking at the graph the more you train the higher your fatigue goes which makes sense. The more work you do, the more fatigue you become over time. Now, the, all of the little red dots sort of don't necessarily just get added up for this um, acute training load. It becomes what's called a weighted average of the last seven days, meaning that the training that you've done over the, the last few days have more an effect on that acute training load than the ones that you did you know, six days ago which makes sense, right? The training that you did three days ago or yesterday makes you more tired than the training that you did five days ago. So the pink line there is your fatigue. As you train more, in terms of more little red dots, the higher this acute training load is going to go. Now, in terms of the blue line that you can see on the Training Peaks Performance Management Chart, This here is called our chronic training load, our chronic training load, meaning training load over an extended period of time. Now, it can also be thought of as fitness. And essentially what this is, is it's an exponentially weighted average of the last 42 days of training. All right, so the last 42 days of training. And again, the training that you've done Uh, closer to the time that you've done it is going to have more of an effect on this. While the training that you did three months ago has an effect on your fitness now, the fitness that you did two weeks ago has more of an impact on your fitness now. And that's why it's exponentially weighted. It's not just uh, an equation that adds up everything that you've done. It's uh, an equation that uses these algorithms to make sure that it's actually a representation of what it is in the real world and so what we're aiming to do is make this blue line obviously go up so it represents our fitness so over time there's this accumulation of training load and that blue line should be tracking upwards the now i'll move on to the next one before sort of talking uh, more in depth about everything But the yellow line, the the other line that you can see on your performance management chart, is what's called the training stress balance. The other way that you could think of this is that training stress balance is like your form or how ready to go you are. And the way that training stress balance is uh, calculated is it subtracts yesterday's fatigue from yesterday's fitness. So what it is, is, is about how fresh you are. And if you can imagine on race day, we want to be standing on the race, line, uh, the, race, the, the race start line with our blue line or our fitness as high as possible, and our yellow line or our form or our freshness as high as possible as well. So this would be, for an example, if you went out and did a really hard training session the day before a race, You would be standing on the line potentially really fit because your blue line might be higher than it was the day before, but you would be fatigued, so you're not able to access the fitness that you've just developed. So what the performance management chart allows Mm -hmm. us to do is start to build a little bit of a story or a bit of a picture around you and how you respond to training. Now, the numbers that are on the performance management chart are, are arbitrary numbers. And there's not a certain number that somebody needs to get to to have a certain performance. But it becomes more about tracking it for you. So see how much um, chronic training load that you take to perform really well. Or to see how much acute training load you can take before you start to get run down and tired. Now... Training peaks in the performance management chart really rewards consistency and not just because that's decided what they're going to reward, but training rewards consistency. The more consistent you are with your training, the more steady your fitness will go up. If you miss a week of training, there's going to be a decrease in your fitness in the future as that rolling calculation hits that week of missed training. And again, if you just go out and do a massive training session and then not much else, and then another massive training session and not much else, again, as those rolling averages come around and pick those up, you're going to go up, and then it's going to drop away, and you're going to go up again, and you're going to drop away. So consistent consistency, as we talked about in the last episode of the podcast, is really crucial, uh, and the training, uh, the performance management chart is another place where that really comes in we're going to wrap it up there and I'll just as an introduction to the performance management chart so you can hopefully get hit around it and in the next episode what I want to talk about is starting to think about using your performance management chart a little bit more wisely a little smarter to not only predict the, the training that you're going to do, but to get you into the position you want to be on race day to maximise that form and maximise that freshness. But for now, as a bit of an introduction, we'll leave it there. Nick, do you have anything to add about the performance management chart as a general overview?
1: Um, only thing would be around, like you said, being cautious of getting bogged down in what the actual number is and thinking, oh, you know, okay, John down the road, his fitness is at 80, mine's only at 50, I must be well below him in terms of actually being fit. Um, But it's all relative to yourself. Uh, And especially if you don't have a a long sort of back history of training data in training peaks, then you you can make it look like your fitness line is growing quite quickly if you don't have a lot of data pre-dumping a whole bunch of data in. And coincidentally, you can also make it look like it's dropping away if you come off a big block. Um, and then you're just doing some, some weekly maintenance sort of stuff. So really, like you said, knowing what it is you're looking at and why you're looking at it before you start sort of looking at it on a daily basis.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And a lot of the time around this time of year, especially if athletes have had big races, uh, let's say in January or February, then they go through um, a recovery block or an off-season after that for you know a week or two weeks. Then what they'll do is they'll get back into training but their fitness will keep going down because the calculations are still involving that you know off-season that you had. And it's really important to have those undulations in our training because we can't stay at peak fitness all of the time. And a lot of people do get a bit worried about that, and potentially that's something we'll dig into uh, in our next episode when we talk about using that performance management chart. Alrighty, so Nick, this week you are going to jump into sprint interval training for your segment. Let's hear it.
1: Cool, so the two questions that when you start talking around sprints or power intervals uh, that you get back from people is, you know, why would a marathon runner need to train using 100 meter sprints? Or why would, like, an Ironman athlete go and do 10-second max efforts on their bike or 25-metre max, 25 max uh, efforts in the pool? And when people are talking around power and so forth, often they, they get caught up in thinking around cycling, especially with FTPs or functional threshold power tests, because that's what everyone likes to talk about, is, oh, what's your FTP and, you know, your, what's your heart rate on what's your max power? Righty-rah. Um, but... From a cycling point of view, FTP is is the measure that we can get. But when we look at, say, in the pool for, for swimming, you know, how much power can you apply through your, your freestyle stroke, or when you're in the kayak, how much power can you get through the pull stroke of your paddle, um, and also at running, um, you know, power and and these speed uh, components can actually really help propel you further and faster for a longer period of time, so your overall race time comes down. So. There's a lot of areas that we can utilize power in um, in these sort of sprint intervals with endurance training, Uh, but I thought I'd just start by breaking it down as in what actually is power um, in this sort of topic. So power is essentially the the rate of energy transferred in a given period of time, and if we look at the, the formulation for power, it's force times velocity equals power. So Therefore, if we want to increase power, we can either increase the force we apply, or we can increase the speed at which we apply it, or we can increase both together. So it's easier to probably think about it on a bike, because we can all conceptualise that a wee bit better. If you're sitting on a flat road, you're pushing 100 watts. Cadence is about 80. If you want to increase this wattage to 150, you can either change the gears, you've got a greater resistance, therefore a greater force to apply to the bike to push, or you can increase the cadence up to ninety, hundred, or you can do both in a, uh, some sort of combination to get up there. Uh, same too when you know you're swimming a kayak and you can apply more force to your pull stroke, and you can increase your stroke rate, um, and both of them are going to have a an effect on your overall power number. When we look at running, though, we're sort of concerned around the resistance that's needed to overcome the the forces that are applied to us as we're moving forward. So we've got the ground force that we're pushing off, we've got some air resistance, and we've also got the slope of whether we're running on a flat surface or a hill. So the force there is is around how much it takes to push forward, um, and we can also obviously increase our stroke uh, stride rate, which is going to increase the speed, which is going to have an impact on our power as well. So because we know what, power is and how the two components make up to, to give us power, we can manipulate each one of those two within our training to increase our power and to work on the, the power component of our um, sport. So there are many ways, especially on the bike, um, you know, you can jump on a hill and put your, uh, your gears up into a big, big chain ring and push hard. You can run up a hill, you can put pads on your hands inside the, uh, the pool. Um, and Matty might have some better ideas around the kayaking side of things. It's not something I've delved into before, but I'm sure you can apply some resistance to your kayak stroke um, to help with increasing the, the resistance component.
0: Yep, yeah, so we use uh, bungees around boats, uh, around hulls. Uh, also, you can put tennis balls on those bungees to make more resistance. So you can use bigger paddle blades. You can use longer paddle shafts. All of those things uh, add add resistance, so you've got to put more power into you know, more force into each stroke to to go.
1: Yeah, cool. And so all of those sort of combinations of things are looking at increasing the resistance or the force component to that equation. But coincidentally, we can jump on our bike and we can do high cadence work. Um, we can do high cadence work while we're running um, and swimming and kayaking as well. So we're increasing the speed of our movement. Uh, but both of those trikees approaches by themselves are just focusing on one part of that equation. And... Focusing on one part of that equation is not a bad thing. We know we need to increase our cadence from time to time when we're kayaking or swimming. um, And we need to increase the force applied on the bike, say, when we're going up a hill. But to really get them to the best bang for our buck in terms of maximizing our power, uh, we want to manipulate both of those two components together. And that's kind of where we come down to when we're looking at sort of sprint training. So a sprint interval is essentially in that kind of 2-second to 30-second effort. And it's sort of maximally applied um, with a decent recovery interval, sort of in that you know three to five minute realm. So you're really fully recovering and then going again maximally. The idea of these sessions isn't around you know your lactate accumulation sessions where you're looking to build up lactate by working hard, recovering in a short period of time, working hard again and building up. You really want to be able to give 100% every time you you repeat an interval. So on a bike, they might. Look at starting from a you know standing start and you're in a big gear and you maximally pedal for 10 seconds. All of everything you got into the pedal, into the pedals, push, 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 and then you're recovering for four minutes with some nice easy spinning. And then you repeat that four or five times within a one session. Um, when you look at running, you might be doing 150 meter reps, or you might use 50 meters to sort of build up your speed, 75 meters of an all-out effort, and then easing back over the 25 metres walk around maybe the rest of the track if you're on a running track, uh, or walk back to the start, uh, and then you're going again. So you've got these really intense periods of work with really long periods of recovery. You can also use a time for running if you don't have access to a track. So you might run all out for 20 seconds and then do, again, a three or four-minute recovery component. So... The... The time and distance within those intervals can certainly be manipulated to change the type of session. So you've got, you know, like a five-second max effort will be different to a 20-second max effort in terms of what you can put out. And also you can probably repeat a lot more five-second efforts within one session than you can with a 20-second effort. So repeating five seconds is obviously going to be easier as long as you have that recovery, which is therefore going to enable you to push higher potential power or run faster, and then you're working on that kind of up upper range, that uh, peak power is what we'd, we'd be looking at around there. But if you're doing a 20-second interval, you're looking at how you can hold that ability, so you can push up to a, a decent high power, and you can hold it for a longer period of time. And each of those two are going to have, have trade-offs in terms of the uh, the benefits for your race, um, but they're all just as important, I think, especially for endurance athletes where we're not mm-hmm. looking for a, a sprint effort like a track cyclist might, or a track uh, runner a 100 meter runner where they just need to focus on that explosive 10 second power so to speak so one of the one of the main benefits I think of especially those short power you can really you know you might get 10 five second repeats within your session so therefore you're actually able to stack in a lot more work than if you're getting a couple of 20 second efforts and then you're sort of done essentially because you've worn yourself out. Um, But, again, for for endurance athletes, I would certainly be focusing on a range of different intervals. So one week might be five seconds, next week's 20 seconds, back to 10 seconds. And so you're really working on that whole upper power range that we've got. Now, again, sort of the big question is why why bother? Uh, Why does someone that wants to run a marathon, which might take them four hours, want to go and sprint for 10 seconds once a week? Basically, I mean, the benefits extend across all endurance sport Um, and if we look at cyclists by increasing your power um, you're able to sprint for the finish line in a race in a bunch you're able to catch up with a bunch of the the bunch is surging on you Um, going up a small rise you can punch up that small rise a bit quicker because you've developed the power to do so Uh, mountain biking similar uh, you know you see a lot more punchier climbs generally in a mountain bike race less of the bunch but you're still potentially likely to sprint or you're sprinting at the start of a mountain bike race on a, a cross country course to get into a better position. Um, but in both cases that you know if we can raise our peak power and we can raise our average peak power, therefore our FTP or our functional threshold power will increase. So we can increase our work capacity um, for a longer period of time, pushing harder for longer essentially. Um, when we look over to running, you know you're looking more around the speed. So if we can run faster then we can apply that through our pace when we're onto a marathon or a 10k or a half marathon, whatever our distance, um, because we're able to, again, push harder for longer and maintain that speed. We're getting more used to running at a faster speed as well. We're teaching the body from a neuromuscular point of view to actually work faster than we have before. Also, if we look at the force component, so when we're sprinting, obviously we require greater force to push ourselves harder. Um, that can help with things like running up hills. So we can work on our hill running benefits by us, sorry, our hill running performance by running on the flat at a faster speed by applying more force. And then again, similar to our cycling, um, by increasing our sort of peak power on a running point of view, we're looking at how we can maintain a higher pace um, for a longer period of time. One advantage i guess to, to power training for all sports i see is around the efficiency of that movement so to move quicker we develop a greater efficiency to move better now one of the great examples i guess was that is that with running you know people talk about you shouldn't be heel striking when you're running you want to be up on your the sort of ball of your feet when we sprint it's really hard to sprint by landing on your heel um, and i'd encourage you to have a wee try it if you want to to see how awkward it is Generally when we sprint we're up on the uh, the ball of our feet and so we're more efficient at running and then ideally we can transfer that back to our longer distance running when we're uh, running a bit slower because we're more used to running in that pattern. Another benefit too is around muscle fibre recruitment. So to apply this maximal power we need to recruit more muscle fibres and so by doing that we essentially reduce the percentage of our muscle fibers that we're using at a lower intensity. So if we're maximally recruiting peak power 100%, and therefore the body's adding in more muscle fibers each time we stress our system maximally, that 100% starts to grow. So we've got 20 muscle fibers to start with, or muscle motor units, we've now got 50. And so then when we're doing that at a lower intensity, steady state aerobic work, We're using a lower percentage, so we've got more in reserve, essentially, to go up and apply that power, going up a hill, sprinting to catch someone, and so forth. Um, And just to kind of finish off in terms of this side of training, a couple of safety points. Um, Sprint training places a great stress on the body. You know, the the TSS that Matty was talking about before from sprint training is quite high. and then, therefore, you need to make sure your a your technique is quite good before we start. In some cases, you don't want to be a beginner runner going out and trying to sprint. You're more likely to injure yourself. Um, but also, you don't want to go into them cold. So you want to have a really decent warm up. You know, your whole session might be an hour. Uh, twenty minutes of that might be on the sprint component, and then twenty minutes of that is actually warming up, mobilising yourself, um, doing some low intense, uh, some low grade sort of sprints, maybe a ten second acceleration before you actually get into the 20-second the max efforts. So you're fully warmed up before you get there. Uh, and also just making sure that all your equipment, especially when you're on the bike, um, is actually up to, up to scratch. You, know, you don't want to have loose cleats or really loose pedal. Uh, you know, your pedals want to make sure they're nice and tight. Your cleats are nice and tight on your shoe. Your chain's not worn out because it is quite a common thing to see people breaking equipment when they're applying maximal power. Um, and I'm sure Matty's seen some of that in the, the, his track cycling days,
0: mate. If you're not breaking gear, you're not bloody going hard enough, are you? <laughs> this is true. This is true. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, some great points there, Nick. And something that we'll talk about uh, in our next episode regarding the performance management chart, because you said training—you know—training you know, training stress is really high. Worth uh, these intervals, and it—and it is. It's really, really high but interestingly that your tss unless you're doing it on a bike with a power meter often doesn't represent it very well because if you're using heart rate because the interval bursts are so short your heart rate actually never gets up that high because it's such a short time you don't respond to it so you could go out and do one of these sessions and get your tss is quite low uh, if you're using heart rate to monitor your training and then you're like well that wasn't actually that hard but it neuromuscular, it's really hard and one of the things we'll talk about uh, next week, and some of the shortfalls around the performance management chart, is that it doesn't uh, measure neuromuscular stress pretty, you know, very well at all. Because sprint interval training is just that—it's a neuromuscular uh, stimulus that we're putting on the body. And I'll, I'll put money on it, good money, in, in that fact, and that you endurance, endurance athletes will go out there if they haven't done this type of training before, and they'll think, "Well, this feels easy. Let's ramp it up a little bit." Shorten the rests up because what endurance athletes like to feel or are used to feeling when they're working hard is that huffing and puffing and sweating, uh, that metabolic type activity that gives those uh, those training indications. But if you're doing a sprint interval session properly, you shouldn't be feeling like that. You know, you're working maximally, but then, like Nick said, you're having a long break. Because if you don't have a long break and hit another one really quickly, kind of like all of the, the hit interval training or the uh, Tabata-type stuff that's coming out or that is out at the moment, especially in um, sort of mainstream health and fitness, is that's really targeted at that metabolic conditioning, conditioning the heart, the lungs, uh, and, and the muscles to, to to work hard. Whereas sprint interval training is deliberately targeted at not, so much training the metabolic processes of the muscles, but training the neuromuscular activation of those muscles. And if you think back to our energy systems chat, it's all about that, that uh, ATP, PCR energy system, about short-term energy production. And when you do that, you don't puff because it's not for very long. So if you're puffing and you're, and you're completely uh, smashing yourself, you're probably doing it wrong. And you raised a good
1: point that I completely forgot to address around, I prescribe these sessions with heart rate is often impossible. Um, Mm. On a power meter on a bike, like you said, is very possible because you've got an absolute number. Uh, But if you're doing a 10 second or a five second power interval running, biking, kayaking, swimming, your heart rate's not going to rise into that zone five region, which is where we'd normally talk about, okay, that, you know, zone five plus is in our power anaerobic levels, um, but you won't see it on a heart rate
0: mm.
1: uh, monitor. So you really have to uh, make sure you're applying yourself fully, and it's a really good kind of use of the almost those RPE scales, the rating of perceived exertion. Okay, I'm at working at a 10. I'm, I'm maxing myself out here um, in each different sort of uh, in sprint interval.
0: Yeah and and even if you're on a bike with a power meter because the interval's so short you're like you don't go off the line thinking right I'm going to get to this number or I'm just about there or I'm just about there I'll work a little bit harder all you're doing is just going as hard as you can and then afterwards you say oh that I got to that number because it's yeah. almost impossible to sort of look down focus on a number and and wind it up so to speak so if you're doing them properly you just going as hard as you can aren't you
1: Yeah absolutely and Especially on the bike, just be mindful of where you are doing them too. Um, You know, you probably don't want to be doing them down the main street, uh, although at the moment it's probably not such a bad issue on (laughs) lockdown. There's not too many cars floating around. But just be mindful of the fact that you're less likely to be in control of your bike. You can't stop quite as quickly when you're screwed your face up, you know, sort of screaming internally because you're pushing so hard.
0: And Um, where do people usually look when they're going as hard as they can? They put their head down. "Ah!" Yeah. (laughs) They're not even looking where they're going, are they?
1: (laughs) No. So that's where running's got the advantage. You know, around the track's really cool because you've got a really controlled environment. Uh, but on the bike, you know, find a nice, quiet stretch of road. Uh, a small incline can sometimes help to put in some more power. Uh, but just be mindful of around cars around you moving about.
0: Yeah, some great, great points there. Uh, and we will talk more about uh, the performance management chart and the problems with that. Uh, that potentially you can run into with that sprint interval training uh, and a few other types of training as well uh, on our next episode. So, Nick, is that sprint interval training wrapped up? It is. Yep. Boom. If you've got any questions about that, uh, feel free to contact us and we can dig into a little bit deeper um, nicely overview there. No doubt there will be more questions about specifics. There usually is. So I've got a question here from um, a listener. Sonny Lee sent me this question last June. So my apologies, we're just getting around to it. Um, But here's the question. They've started running fasted in the morning. uh, And then they run up to about 20Ks fasted. And then on their really long one run each week, they take some gels and bars to teach their gut how to still process carbs. Very smart way of doing things there. Um, but this person's got some questions. And this is around an article that I wrote, which is over on the Exponential Performance uh, website. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes over at exponentialperformancecoaching.com slash 73 for episode 73 but the article that i wrote was titled glycogen manipulation training and what that long-sounding title is is it just a fancy way of saying fasted training so not eating before you train or during training and that so just as a bit of a brief because i don't want to get too much into this i uh, just want to answer this question more so today but maybe we can look into it more in more depth muscle glycogen manipulation training or fasted training the concept is is to challenge your body uh, to make its own energy rather than relying on the food that you take in so when your body starts to get low on muscle glycogen the stored energy in your muscles it starts a cascade of effects uh, that help us improve our endurance in the future so there's a signal that helps us make more mitochondria and a uh, signal that helps us metabolize more fat or get better at doing that. So in the future, when our body is low on energy, it is better at doing it. And it's just it, it's the training adaptations that we're after. But if you go out and do a long ride or a long session and you eat, then it kind of just makes it that you have to go longer to get the adaptations that we're after. So fasted training is a way of doing that, uh, sort of fast tracking the, the process. So if you want to read more about that, check the article out over uh, in the show notes for episode 73. But here are some questions that this person had about this. So first question, there's three different questions they had. They heard some athletes say that fasted training includes fasting the night before i.e. not having any carbohydrates the night before. And they're saying, I do have carbohydrates the night before. They say, I usually eat my dinner the night before because my wife will kill me if I don't. Smiley emoji. But uh, they don't eat anything in the morning. Is this run still considered to be fasted or does it have any benefits at all? So there's lots of different ways of doing this fasted training or muscle Manipulate a muscle glycogen manipulation training and this is one of them so you Have your normal dinner whatever that might be you go to sleep and in the morning you wake up don't have any breakfast And you go out and do your training session and what you'll find in that session is that During the night when you're sleeping your body relies on the glycogen or the stored energy in your liver For the energy to get you through sleep sleeping actually requires quite a bit of energy so when you wake up in the morning and your liver glycogen is depleted, but your muscle glycogen or that energy in your muscles is still there because you hopefully haven't been doing too much exercising in the night. So when you go out and you go and do your training session, then you're starting with lower overall glycogen levels because your liver glycogen is depleted and you will use your liver glycogen during exercise. So it, it, it doesn't take as long for you to deplete, get those signals that we're after to improve our endurance capacity. So that's one way of doing it. The other way of doing it, as uh, Sonny Lee here uh, alluded to, is not eating the night before or having low carbohydrate. And especially if you trained the day before and then you don't refuel at dinner time, then when you wake up in the morning, you're going to have depleted liver glycogen from your overnight fast and then your muscle glycogen is going to be depleted as well because you haven't refueled it from the day before. Is it better or worse? It's just another level up. So if you have been doing overnight fast training in the morning without breakfast for a while, and you can happily go three hours without hitting the wall, then it's probably a good indication that you've adapted to that training stress and you need to do something else. So... Is it still a fasted session? Yes, because you're fasted overnight. Uh, is have not having dinner or having a low carbohydrate dinner another way of doing it? Absolutely is as well. Just different, not better or worse. There are other ways of doing um, fasted type training as well or glycogen manipulation training where you try train twice a day. Train in the morning, get some depletion. Uh, minimize the amount of carbohydrates you have at lunchtime, train again in the evening. Again, you've got uh, depleted muscle glycogen levels. You're going to get those uh, those signals to increase your mitochondria and your fat oxidation as well. I'm I'm feeling, Nick, that we're probably going to need a, a big episode on this because <laughs> um, I'm glossing over a lot of things, and I can hear people thinking, oh, what about this, what about that? But let's push on. Question number two. Because this is from June last year, so I think I owe Sunny, Sunny Lee, a uh, answer. So question number two, they f- they also run faster during their interval training sessions, uh, and they've had no issue so far. And in that article that I wrote, uh, it says that you recommend not uh, you recommend to eat on interval days. They said they've had no issues; they still hit their paces. But yes, in that article, I do write, during your interval sessions on those interval days, I would highly recommend doing them fueled. And here's why. During our interval sessions, the most important thing that we're looking for is to hit certain training intensities to get the training outcome that we're after. Now you say that you've had no issues so far, that you still hit your paces. What I'd recommend is you still fuel because what is likely going to be happening is your potentially, uh, your capacity will be limited. Sure, you could get three or four intervals out at the correct intensity and then you start to get tired and you shut the session down thinking that was a good session. But could you have done three more at the correct intensity as well before you did start to shut them down? So I always recommend do interval sessions fueled because we're not looking at improving our mitochondria uh, density through our endurance sort of pathway or our fat oxidation capacity through our interval training. What we're trying to do is stimulate VO2 max, uh, anaerobic threshold, or neuromuscular capabilities through that sprint interval training that Nick has just talked about. So I'd always say be fueled for interval sessions so that you can hit the correct intensities and get that capacity that you're after. You might be cutting yourself short there. Question number three. Some athletes run a marathon totally without fuel except water. What are my thoughts on that? They say, I ask because I seem, I always seem to have stomach issues, bloating, for example, during marathon races where they eat gels and bars. However, strangely, during training, even up to 40 kilometers and shorter races with the same fuel, they never experience these issues of bloating. But during the marathon race day, every time they... Do one, they get that bloating and that stomach issues. I wonder why and still have no answers. They've got another marathon coming up next week. And they said, I shall see. So I hope that marathon went well last year. Um, Sunny Lee, apologies for not getting back to you sooner. So, yes, some people do. Some elite marathoners take minimal fuel. However, I would, and, and some Marathon, marathoners that aren't elite also don't take any fuel either. And that's probably why they run so slowly. But here is something to think about. When they were doing the two-hour marathon uh, attempt with Kip Jogi, one of the big things that they were working on was the fuel for it. They put a heap of work into what these guys were going to drink uh, and consume in terms of fuel. It was in a drink form to make sure that they had the energy to last, last the marathon. I would say for uh, a, a good marathon performance, for your peak, your personal best, you would want some sort of fuel on board. We know we've got about 90 minutes of stored energy in our muscles and our liver, and we can push that out maybe to around about uh, two hours, depending on who you are and depending on how hard you're exercising. But everyone's going to need something for a marathon performance and even if you get through the marathon without eating and you think, you know, I didn't need anything, told you so, you probably could have gone faster if you had something on board. Okay, it's just just it's just physiology at the end of the day. But a lot of people are very hesitant, as you say, during a marathon or any endurance event really, because of stomach issues. Are very hesitant to take on fuel because they don't want to get stomach issues. And a big part of this is actually people's strategies to how they eat during a marathon. Many people will start out with this thought in the back of their minds thinking, I'm going to get a stomach issue today. I just know it. I always get it when I eat something or consume, drink, however you're taking in you feel. I'm going to hold off as long as I can. So what they do is they get through the first half of the race feeling good because they haven't had anything. Remember, we've got about 90 minutes of muscle glycogen on board. They start to get tired as they get through that first half of the marathon. And then they think, oh, okay, maybe I better have something because I'm really slowing down now. And they have something, and boom, that's when they get the stomach issues. Now, another thing to think about is that when you're exercising, your body will send blood to where it, where your body needs it. So Your muscles, obviously, are where it needs it during a marathon. The harder you run, the more blood has to go to your muscles. Where does that blood come from? Well, you've only got a certain amount of blood in your body, so your body has to redirect blood flow away from other areas of your body. And one of the big areas that's non-essential during a marathon is your stomach. Unless you're eating or you've got something going into it. So what will happen is over that first half of the marathon, your legs are working really hard, your stomach's not working at all because it's got nothing in it. So your body thinks, all right, I've got some extra blood in my stomach, in my digestive tract, in my intestines, let's send it to the legs because they really need it right now. And so you can imagine your stomach just becomes more and more inactive because it's got no blood flow at all or minimal blood flow, and then you get to around about the 25K, 30K mark, and you're like, right, I need something because my energy's shot, I'm going to dump back this gel, I'm going to grab a Coke from the aid station as well because I'm really shattered, and you've just chucked all of this stuff in your stomach and into your digestive tract that's not ready for it. It hasn't had any blood in there for the last hour and a half. And so what does it do? It spasms up, it cramps, it gets bloating because it just can't handle all of the stuff you've just chucked at it. So a better approach, one that can work really well, is drip-feeding your stomach. So little and often, right from the start. So rather than having lots and lots at aid station, think about drip-feeding little bits often, because then the blood flow to your stomach is maintained throughout the race. You're not asking it to do all of this work when it's not warmed up, so to speak. The other thing I really liked you mentioned was that you kept consuming some carbohydrate and uh, bars and gels during some of those longer training runs. That's fantastic. Back in episode 5 of the podcast, way back in episode 5, I talk about training the gut, different ways that we can train our stomach and our gastrointestinal tract, uh, because it's not just our stomach, remember, it's our intestines as well, different ways we can train them to better handle the Uh, the food and the fluid that we take in during uh, races. So go check that out on episode five, and I'll post a link to that in the show notes as well. And the other thing was, why does it happen? The other thing is, why does it happen in racing and not in training? Because you've run up to 40Ks in training with no issues, but as soon as you run over 20Ks in racing, Bang, that's when the problem is. And the problem is really just your intensity more than likely. You will run faster on race day than you do in training. And again, if you're running faster, where does the blood want to go? wants to go to your legs, away from your stomach. And again, you're probably on race day thinking, right, don't want to get a stomach cramp. I'm going to hold off on the fueling. Whereas if you're running in training and you're deliberately thinking about taking on fuel, to train your stomach, you're more than likely taking them in, taking that fuel in from the start, and that stomach's ready for it. It's warmed up. It's ready for it. So when you get to 40Ks and there's been no issue, you think, what's going on? I've eaten. I've had no issues. Well, you've probably been eating from the start or pretty close to the start. Running a little bit slower, more than likely, blood's going to your stomach that whole time. It's able to handle everything that you're putting into it there is also uh, a little bit around uh, leakage from your gut when you're racing hard and in the heat and that can also cause bloating and stomach issues as well uh, but without wanting to go too much further into it uh, th- those would be my recommendations around that Nick what are your thoughts for Sunny Lee regarding that a lot uh, a, a lot sorry i Bombarded you with a lot. Take you your time.
1: <laughs> you did. Um, no, one thing I was just thinking about there around the race differences to training, um, especially if people are manipulating you know meals pre-training runs. They're not having a you know a breakfast before a training session, or they're not eating dinner the night before. And then, like gets race day, and they have a massive dinner the night mm. before. They get up. Oh, I'm going to have a big breakfast three hours before my run. I've got to have another banana. I've got to have a gel before I start. And your guts just like I'm not used to this amount of food generally, and now you've thrown it in, and now I'm going to, have to go for a 40k run. So, trying to keep that meal plan similar for a couple of your big training runs. So whatever you're having for sort of lunch, dinner, and breakfast the the two days before, or a couple of days before, keeping them nice and fresh. You know, if you're travelling for that race, you know, so many people they'll travel out of town for a certain race and they go down to the pub mm. and they have a big burger or they have pizza. And they wonder whether they have a sore gut the next day as well. So trying to keep the food nice and fresh, nice and healthy, lots of vegetables, um, some nice lean meats can really go a long way at looking after your gut during the race before you even start considering what you're putting in during the race itself. Um, and for some reason, too, I'm not sure why marathon, like road marathons, have never really gravitated towards people carrying a bunch of food. Mm. I know they've got a lot of, they've got decent aid stations in most of them, but like you said, if you are reliant on an aid station, you can only eat and drink at said aid station. And you often end up taking a lot of liquid in because you think, oh, I've got to have a couple hundred mils. I've got to have a gel. I've got to have a bar. Instead of like just dripping it in throughout the time. So maybe even carrying a small bum bag or a nice small vest. But some of the vests these days are really lightweight. So you can just be sipping away constantly on some water, some electrolytes, um, and you know whatever nutrition you've got can be going in at a smaller but more frequent time great
0: community help yeah I mean that's that's gr- those are great points and I think the one about um, like the whole question was around to start with fasted training right so this person has been doing lots of their training even their interval training fasted so they their stomach's not really used to having stuff on board is it like you say and then leading into race day Everyone knows you want to have lots of carbohydrate, you know, top up your carbohydrate stores, not necessarily heading to the pasta party and carbo-loading, but you want to have sensible amount of carbohydrate on board. And so it's more than likely they're not waking up in the morning and, and running the marathon faster. They're having, you know, it on board. And even though they mentioned that they do, so, like, one of their long training runs, training their stomach, it's probably likely they haven't done enough of that. So, they're, you know, their GI tract has got use to training fasted and then when they go back to race that's where uh where is a a bit of a problem so definitely check out episode five where we talk about training the stomach and i think next week and next episode episode 74 we are going to go big on uh muscle glycogen manipulation training or nutrient deprivation or faster training or whatever we're going to call it lots of different names for it Uh, and I think what we'll dig dig into it in a big way because there are a lot of questions out there about it, and I can imagine after this episode there will be a few questions as well, how we can do it well uh, and and maximize our training for our performance, not necessarily just on the training day. Thoughts on that, Nick? Should we do it? Sounds good to me. Excellent. Deep dive. We're going granular. We'll go granular on it. Awesome team. We're going to wrap it up there for today. Thanks for joining us. If you have got any questions for us, feel free to send them through either via email or social media, or it would be great if you could send them in via a voice message. How much better would it have been to have Sonny Lee asking the question himself rather than just me rabbiting on and stumbling over his email? Until next week, get out there and train hard, but most importantly, train smart. We'll talk to you later. Mate, thanks for listening. If you would like to support this podcast and see it continue into the future, you can do so in a number of ways. Firstly, make sure you subscribe to this channel on whatever platform you are listening Like and share the podcast on social media to help spread the word. If you're feeling really generous, head over and leave a review and a rating over on iTunes. This helps spread the word and develop the podcast. All of this will help the podcast continue long into the future so we can keep bringing you the information you need to train hard, but most importantly, train smart.